who um, was for New York City. And, and uh, being from New York, he dug down about 10 feet and he found traces. He found traces of copper wiring, traces of copper wiring dating back about 100 years. And he concluded that New Yorkers had a telephone network over 100 years ago. Now, not to be outdone, not to be outdone, an archaeologist from California dug down 20 feet. He dug down 20 feet, and he found copper wiring dating back 200 years. And he concluded, he concluded that uh, California had a massive communication network uh, over 100 years before the New Yorkers. 100 years before the New Yorkers. Upon hearing this, Bubba from Eastern Oregon, he dug down 30 feet. He down, dug down 30 feet on his farm and found absolutely nothing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he concluded, he concluded, 300 years ago, Oregonians had gone wireless. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, that's funny to me. I was funny to you, but maybe it isn't. Good old Bubba. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things. There are a lot of things that we can learn from history. Lots of things that we can learn from history. Now, did you know uh, in the four volumes of Abraham Lincoln, The Warriors, there, there's an author by the name of Carl Sandburg, and he discusses the dark years of Abraham Lincoln's life leading up to the darkest time when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And, and following this particular section on Abraham Lincoln's life and death, there's a chapter who's, who's drawn the proverb is drawn from from uh, uh, from an old proverb called the old woodsman, and and it, and, it, and this proverb is this: a tree is best measured when it's down, when it's down. And while Abraham Lincoln was standing up, his life could not be properly appraised. It took the the failing of this great man uh, to appreciate the solid oak character. Isn't that true? To appreciate the solid oak character. Now. We're about halfway through uh, the series that we've been doing on David's life. We're about halfway through, and it's a good place to do some review, to look back a little bit, and then to look in the future just a little bit. But we want to review, and we want to look at where David has been in his life. We want to appraise this particular man that we've been looking at, Scripture, a man after God's own heart. Remember, as a teenager, the Bible indicates that David is called 16, 17 years of age, he is called to be the king-elect of uh, Jerusalem, of Israel. And God has anointed him. He's called him. He's, he's equipped him. He's filled him with the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, David is thrust into public ministry because he goes and helps his brothers, who is on the, uh, the cutting edge, you might want to say, they're, on the, uh, they're, they're facing the Philistines, and they're facing Goliath from Goth, this huge nine-feet, nine-inch tall giant. And day after day, Goliath is bellowing his threats, and he's telling those individuals, your babies, nobody's going to come out, nobody will face me, nobody's going to fight me. And David hears this upon entering into camp. He hears what Goliath is saying, and he says, basically, my paraphrase, I can't 
believe what this guy is saying. There's no one who's going to face him. I'll face him. I'll fight him. And he goes to King Saul to make a long story short. And he says, I will be the one that will do this. And with a single stone and with a sling, the Bible says that David marches across the valley of Elah and he swings that thing around there and he lets it go and he hits Goliath right between the eyes and Goliath falls over and David runs over, grabs a sword, cuts off his head, severs his head from his shoulders and Goliath is dead. It's a rout. And immediately the Bible says that David is thrust into public ministry. You might want to say, if I could use this poor analogy, that David became a so-called rock star overnight. A rock star. He's thrust into public ministry. And women and people are singing songs about him. They're singing this little ditty that goes all over the place. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And And this little song hit the ears of King Saul. And the Bible says he grew intensely jealous. And three times, three times if you can believe it, he threw a spear at David while David was playing a harp trying to comfort Saul who was being tormented by an evil spirit. And three times he missed him. And finally David got the idea, this guy's trying to kill me. He's trying to kill me. And so David took off. And from the age of 17, 18 to the time he was 30 years of age, he was a fugitive on the run. We read in Scripture that he went from the the uh, went from all of these um, particular mountains and these these uh, valleys, and he went through all of these different trials. And he ended up in the cave of Adullam. He ended up at the spring of the Engedi, the spring of the goats, and all of these things happened to him. And uh, finally, finally, as we discovered a couple weeks ago, Saul is dead. He took his own life at the very hand, at, at his own hands. He was wounded by an arrow in his stomach and he takes his own life. This is where we're at in our particular story. Now, I want to say to you that David, for the first 50 years of his life, David walked in the integrity of his heart and led people in the greatest and most prosperous time of existence. Though there were a few temporary excursions into sin, most of David's adult years were years of triumph, at least the first 50. And then came the last 20 years of David's life. The first part of his life, you might want to say, is a model of character and integrity. And the last part is a downhill slide until I believe David dies of a broken heart. He was a broken man, you might want to say. So this morning, I'd like to talk about David being made the new king of Israel, his accomplishments, and his spiritual failures as well. But let me just give you a little more background. Let me, let me set the scene for you. As I said, Saul is dead. His life has been over for some time, and all of a sudden, his three sons are dead as well including Jonathan, and David hears the news. He grieves over the losses, especially over his best friend, Jonathan. And then the Lord asks him in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, uh, David asked of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? And the Lord says, Yes, 
And I want you, the Lord says, to go to Hebron. And it was there that David was elected the king, finally, after all these years. Now, in Hebron, which is in Judah, we see that David has a small territory, you might want to say. Just a very, very small territory to begin with in the area of Judah. He doesn't immediately march into Jerusalem and take over the entire nation. Instead, following God's instruction, he goes to Hebron, where for seven and a half years, seven and a half years, he has a limited reign in that small area. He doesn't complain. He isn't anxious. If anything, David has learned to wait patiently upon the Lord. You say, Pastor Ron, why did he have to wait seven and a half years? Because there were a number of usurpers. There were a number of people from Saul's family and other individuals who tried to take over being king. And during the seven and a half years, uh, these self-appointed hotshots, you might want to say, were riding on Saul's shirt tails, and they, they were waiting to make their move. And they began to make their move. And for seven and a half years, David waited patiently for these people, these so-called kings, to fall by the wayside. He's settled in Hebron. He knows he has the ability to rule the country, but he's waiting for God's timing. The waiting rooms of life are the most difficult periods that we ever go through. How many of you remember a number of years ago when the congresswoman from Arizona was shot and she was um, very, very seriously injured? I can't remember her name. I think it was Gabriel. She was married to an ast- she's married to an astronaut. And during that period of recovery, her husband, I remember saying many times over, he said, my wife is making a miraculous recovery. However, she has a long ways to go. And it was an absolute miracle when she stood before Congress and she gave a speech after being shot in the head. Can you imagine that? She's not fully recovered. She's in the waiting room of life. It is in the waiting rooms of life that often God prepares us for the next chapter in our life. And this is where David found himself for seven and a half years in this so-called waiting room of life. Unfortunately, while he was there in Hebron, David made some bad decisions that he later lived to regret. I want you to notice Second uh, Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time, seven and a half years. And, but David grew stronger and dr- stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And did you notice the genealogy that was talked about here in verses 2 through 5? Now, what do these verses tell us? These verses tell us that David had six children. You say, Pastor Ron, that's no big deal. But he had six children with six different wives. Six children with six different wives. Polygamy was permitted. It was permitted in the Bible, in the Old Testament. But it never has been, and it never will be, God's perfect plan. It never was God's perfect plan. Polygamy was one of the dark spots in David's life that later came back to haunt him. Six children with six different wives. And eventually, according to Scripture, David's 
adds even more. Did you know that David had nine recorded wives and 21 children with his recorded wives? And then we read later in Scripture, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 13 and 16, and in 1 Chronicles, that David also had many, many, many concubines and mistresses who had a number of children. I want you to keep this in mind. David's enormous family, all the wives and all the children, because it becomes an issue, an important issue later on, especially after his adultery with Bathsheba. Well, after being king in Hebron for seven and a half years in the small area in Judah, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, that all of a sudden, all of the elders of the 12 tribes of Judah, they come to him and they say, David, we want you to be king over uh, Judah and, and uh, Israel, Jerusalem. We want you to unite all the tribes together and we want you to be king over Judah and Jerusalem. And David says, yes. He says, yes. And God, during that seven and a half years, worked miraculously and all of um, Jerusalem and, and Judah, they were all united under his kingship. Now, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 12, I want you to notice specifically what happens. Would you look at that with me? Second uh, Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. Uh, Pastor Brad read it a little bit earlier, but um, the Bible says that David became greater and greater and greater, and when the blessings begin, they overflowed in David's life and David's cup. Did you know that few earthly kings at this particular time had as much power and prestige. I want to read to you from um, Frederick Owens. He's a fine historian. He writes more like a novelist. But listen to what he says about David in this time. Everything favored national prosperity for Israel. There was no greater power in Western Asia inclined to prevent her becoming a powerful monarchy. The Hittites had been humbled, and Egypt, under the last kings of the 21st dynasty, had lost her prestige and had all but collapsed. The Philistines were driven to a narrow portion of their old dominion, and the king of Tyre sought friendly alliance with David. With a steady hand, David set out to force back and defeat Israel's enemies who had constantly crowded and horned and harassed the Hebrews. Moab and Amnon were conquered. Then the Edomites, alarmed at the ever-increasing power of Israel, rose against David. We read about that here. But were routed by Abishah, who penetrated Petra and became a master of the country. Commercial highways were thrown open, and in came merchandise, culture, wealth from Phoenicia, Damascus, Assyria, Arabia, Egypt, and more distant lands. To his people, David was king, judge, and general, but to the nations about him, he, listen to this, he was the leading power, the leading power in the Near Eastern world, the mightiest monarch of his day. Now, I want you to notice specifically on the overhead this morning, and if you're following along your message notes, David had four major accomplishments. Four major accomplishments. First of all, David expanded Israel's border from 6,000 square miles to, are you ready for this? 60,000 square 
miles. It was an expansion, ex exponential. He expanded from 6,000 square miles under his administration to 60,000 square miles. Imagine that. Incredible. And the second thing I want you to notice is under his administration, David set up extensive trade routes to the entire known world. We're talking about spices. We're talking about jewels. We're talking about diamonds. We're talking about rubies. We're talking about precious metals, gold and silver and bronze. We're talking about pottery. We're talking about clothing. We're talking about cedar. We're talking about opening up trades to Damascus, Assyria, Arabia, Egypt. All were thrown open to trade. And as a result of that, I want you to notice that the poor people became middle class people and the middle class people became rich people and the rich people became ultra rich. In other words, we're talking about economic prosperity beyond your imagination that occurred under his administration. The third thing I want you to note is, as we talked about just a little bit earlier, David united all of the tribes of Israel. All 12 tribes were united under his leadership. And remember, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom were separated and they were torn apart, but he brought these two kingdoms together and he united everybody on the same page. And the fourth greatest thing he did, he helped shape Jewish national interest as far as spiritual concerns. Now listen to this. David was no priest. He was no priest. But David was anointed by God he was filled with the spirit of the living God. He had a relationship with God. He was a man after God's own heart. He loved God with all his heart, body, mind, and soul. And he was concerned about the spiritual welfare of his people. And there was a revival that occurred that had never had happened before under his administration. David got rid of all of the idol worship. He got rid of all the idol altars. He got rid of all the Asher poles. He got rid of all of these competing idol people that worshiped other gods. And he had a central place, you might want to say, he had a central area. He had a priesthood that he, he, he organized and he destroyed, again, all the idol places. He had a, temp, a temple area was built for worship. And did you know that 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day, there were musicians and singers that were singing songs to God. Anytime that you went to that special temple area to worship, you would hear these beautiful songs sung to God. A national revival occurred under him. Now I want to say it this way. I'll say it one more time. David was a remarkable man used by God tremendously, a man after God's own heart, a brilliant organizer, a brilliant military strategist, a brilliant planner, a brilliant manager, a musician, a man who loved God, anointed by God, a man after God's own heart. But... There's always a but, isn't there? But, watch out. Be careful. Prosperity. Prosperity and ease can also lead to perilous times. Not merely blessings for middle age and elderly people. Did you know that C.S. Lewis, the Oxford Don of a number of years ago, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and a number of other books in his book, the Screwtape Letters, 
he has Satan saying, it's on the front of your bulletin, quote, the long, dull, it can be dull sometimes. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, in the book of Revelations, talking about one New Testament church, He said, you're neither hot nor cold. Watch out. David was also human, very human. In fact, he had two major failures in his life, two heartbreaking disappointments. I want you to notice in your message notes, first of all, he lost touch domestically. He lost touch domestically. Can you imagine, um, we use all those terms, being successful at your job, being a hard worker at your job, accomplishing all kinds of things that you want to accomplish. In his public life, he was very, very prosperous. But in his private life, he failed miserably. He failed miserably. When it came to his family, and when it came to taking care of business, David failed miserably. Did you know that at the height of his reign, when all these impressive accomplishments are happening nationally, it is evident that David is losing his family. He had undisciplined children. Absalom, his third-born son, rebels and tries to usurp David's throne. Another son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamnar. And this horrendous act led to murder and enormous dysfunctional relationships within his royal family. And according to Scripture, David's only reaction when all of these things were happening, his family was, he got mad. He just got mad. He blew up. He yelled. He got, he got mad. He just walked the floor and he got mad. And he didn't do anything else. Nothing else. We're going to be talking about that more in detail in the future. But he did nothing else. No discipline. No one-to-one. No heart-to-heart talk. He didn't do anything except for just to get mad when this happened specifically with his family members. Again, before the public, David was very decisive. He was brilliant. But behind the scenes within his own home, he was passive and he was negligent. I know. I've been there. I've been there before. We are so emotionally distraught and you're so involved in your job and you're so involved in public life that when you come home, all you want to do is sit in your easy chair and go like that. That's all you want to do. And this is exactly what happened to David. He did not want to be involved in his family. He failed in his family life. And all the parenting and all the domestic problems, David didn't do that. And I just want to say this. Dads, your, your, your families need you. Even your grown children still need you. Did you hear what I said? Even your grown children still need you. David's second failure. He failed, failed to curb and discipline his passions for sex. He failed to curb and discipline his passions for sex. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a strong sexual appetite, and there's nothing wrong with having sexual intimacy with your spouse. 
But whatever David did, he did with all his heart. Unfortunately, he could not say no to his sexual urges. He saw a beautiful woman, and he had to have that beautiful woman, despite the fact that she was married to somebody else. One spring, at the time of the year, the Bible says, when the kings go to battle, David stayed at home in Jerusalem. He went on his rooftop, and he saw a beautiful woman bathing there. And point by point, when all of those red flags were going off, David ignored this red flag, he ignored this red flag, he ignored this red flag, and he seduced Bathsheba and brought her into his palace, and she got pregnant, and so he lied to her, he lied to himself, he lied to God, and then on top of that, he tried to cover his tracks by murdering Uriah. He not only became an adulterer, but a murderer. Now, I want you to listen to what J. Oswald Sanders says, and he says it so correctly. David's greatest fault lay in his yielding to the passions of the flesh. There was a well-seasoned pastor a number of years ago, and uh, he was meeting with a group of younger pastors. And he said, you know, you know, he said, you know, fellas, besides uh, having special calling on your life and exercising leadership and besides being winsome as far as pastoral ministry is concerned, there are four temptations that you have to avoid because one or more of these are the ones that fell every single pastor down through church history to the present and every single leader and every single layperson. And they all begin with the letter S. Silver, money, sloth, laziness, sex, and self. As I conclude my message this morning, I have two timeless principles I want to share very briefly about David's life that apply directly to our lives. First of all, remember, 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 nothing is more important than pursuing a godly family. Nothing is more important than the pursuit of a godly family. You may get your name up in the lights, you may win all kinds of accolades, and you may get all kinds of awards, but the bottom line is, nothing is more important than the pursuit of a godly family. Now, I'm not here this morning to lay any guilt on any parents because your children have a free will and they have a free choice and you can raise them exactly the way you want them to go and they can go south. There are no guarantees. There are no guarantees. They have a free will and they have a free choice. But you must do your part and I must do my part. We have to do our part. And even when it comes... To our adult children, they still need your encouragement and direction. They still need your input. So please, be a parent and discipline your children. We're not called to an impossible task, and we're not failures when our children make bad decisions. We're only failures when we stop and give up and stop trying. And you remember what Mark Twain used to say, when a child turns 13, 14 years, years of age, put them in a barrel with a knot hole. Remember that? Put them in a barrel with a knot hole, and when they turn 16, plug up the knot hole. And uh, he also said, Mark Twain, I was amazed when I got into my 20s, and I realized how much smarter my parents got. And number two, remember, there is nothing, nothing, more important than the pursuit of personal godliness 
and holiness. You know what Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto us. All those things that we worry about and we're anxious about, all those things like moody, uh, money, food, uh, shelter, whatever it may be, you put God first, and He's going to provide those basic necessities. And He will provide cake and ice cream too sometimes. I want to close right now. We're out of time.